That's probably what some of those people were thinking on Friday when we hear that scripture and all the movements of Easter week that happened, right? Friday night, what in the world happened? This was not what we planned. Some of the same kinds of things we think when we work our way through life. When you think about it, actually, the movements, I mean, they were thinking, what, what if we only we'd have had a better doctor, you know, this whole plan would have worked out maybe. When we look at the events of Easter week, of Passion Week, really examine them closely and you realize eventually that, hey, the movements and experiences of that week are a bit illustrative of the ways our lives go. And some of the things that Easter taught those folks during that week in that inaugural Easter celebration, that Passion Week, our lives parallel those movements and those events. Those are really the human experience when you think about it. In other words, we encounter in our lives the same range of emotions and challenges and life lessons in the weeks that comprise what we put together and call life that comprised those folks' week as well. Some of the things that Adrian just read really are our experiences too. Jesus, well, his followers entered Jerusalem. As he entered Jerusalem, his followers were watching him enter, and they were cheering at the beginning of the week, and then different things happened throughout the week. And by the end of the week, by that Friday, when Jesus was arrested and then executed, they realized, man, something changed. There's a big difference between the way I feel now and what I thought I was going to feel and what I saw then. And life began to come unraveled for them, at least in that moment. That's how it felt. And some of the same things they experienced during that week and the flow of that week, we experience in our own lives. That's the human experience, isn't it? Every one of our lives, for instance, includes some seasons of crushing disappointment, just like theirs did. It's as though that's just a part of the deal. We really have to look no further than Good Friday and what we celebrate on Good Friday. We gathered as eight or nine churches at New Life Church Friday night, filled that room and had a Good Friday celebration. But you know what we were there to celebrate? Something common to all of us. Maybe the most common experience of all of humanity, death. There is no life without death being a part of it. If you've lived long enough, you know that's true. Certainly we realize our own frailty and humanity and there's gonna be a day when we have no more days, when we die. But even before then, we experience different kinds of deaths, the death of relationships, the death of, of startup businesses that we plan to, uh, to celebrate and all of a sudden they're gone, poof. We go through all those kinds of things just like those people during Passion Week experience them, death. But because we know the whole record of the Easter story, we are able to experience those Fridays, those deaths in our lives, in the context of and with the influence of what we know is coming on Sunday. At least that's the call, that's the challenge. When the curveball is thrown at you in life, it's a Friday, it's a death we're going to experience. We weren't expecting it, we weren't planning on it. We can't help those of us who follow Christ anyway, but try at least to interpret those experiences in light of this Sunday initiative that he launched. And specifically, we know this, that though it does play a part in it, death is not the end of the story. Death 
even though there's no life without death, in various versions of death. Even though death plays a part in all life, it doesn't have the last word. Death is not the end of the story. In fact, if we'll think about it really, often it's death and the deaths that we experience along the way that initiate life. Something old dies in order for something new to be born. Some people understand this more than others. This idea that death, one of the lessons Easter week teaches us, that death doesn't really have the last word. It does have a voice, a painful voice, a disappointing voice, a scary voice, but doesn't have the last word. Some people get that and seem to understand it. It shows in the way that they respond to death. Just a couple of examples in this Easter story. You have, for instance, someone of whom we've all heard, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus. And you see the way that Judas responds to the the arrest and ultimately the death, but the arrest of Jesus. He looks and sees what's coming down based on what he initiated. He betrayed Jesus, and then he's overwhelmed with regret. And Judas responds to death as though it's the death of hope for him. As though he's saying, I've blown it so completely. I've done such a terrible, awful thing. If anything is not forgivable, what I've done is not forgivable. There's no hope for me. It's a death of all hope for him. He comes back, actually, and he takes the silver that bought the, was the price of Jesus and the betrayal, and he's so full of regret that he takes the silver and he throws it back at the leaders who paid it to him in the first place. Can you just hear it? as it clashes and makes all the the noise on the tile floor in the temple. He says, I don't want this anymore. He actually says, I betrayed innocent blood. I want out of this deal. Let's undo it. And it's the death of hope for him. There's no hope for me now. And what Judas does, the way he responds, is a remorseful suicide. He goes and he takes his life because that was the death of hope for him. He didn't understand that death has a word but it doesn't have the last word. He did not understand that even if Judas would have gone and called out while Jesus was on the cross, can you even forgive what I've done? The answer would have been yes. He didn't know that. Peter responds to death in a different way than Judas, although a parallel way. To Peter, the death that he experienced was the death of a future. Peter's Peter's a little bit embarrassed by his connection with Jesus. And he thought, well, we've got this plan and I'm going to be a first lieutenant in the kingdom of God. Whenever he becomes king, I'm going to be his, one of his leaders with him. And we're going to take this place over. Man, how about that? I went from fisherman to prince. It's like I went from the state school to Harvard. I mean, I got upgrade. Talk about upgrade. Peter had an upgrade. Did we give you guys coffee cards yet? We've got plenty of coffee cards careful with that stuff. <laughs> Peter's thinking, I'm ashamed. I, look, I want out of this deal. It's the death of a future for me. What we had planned is no longer going to happen. This ends it all. Somebody comes and says, hey, you were one of his disciples, that guy they arrested, that Jesus, you knew him. You have the same accent. I know that it's you. You were with them. I saw you with them. And Peter is so sure that his future is over and he wants to disconnect completely from Jesus that he says, no, 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 you're mistaken. He begins to curse even. I've never seen that wretched man. I don't know anything about him. Not me, you've got the wrong guy. Peter's response to death, to go AWOL, 
and to deny that he even knew Jesus in the first place, to try to save face, to try to back up and get out of this embarrassing situation. Death is a part of life, but Easter reminds us at every turn that it has a voice, but it doesn't have the last word. It has a voice. It plays a part. It's rarely a fun part, but it does not write the final chapter. And then the third comparison, which is drastically and radically different than the first two, are what are referred to as the women. The women who are said to be standing at the cross during the execution of Jesus. Now, there are one or two men that are referenced there too. Joseph of Arimathea, it's implied that he may have been there, but at least he goes from there to get the, gra- the permission for Christ's body. And then uh, John is there because Jesus speaks to him. But you have this network of women who are all there at the cross. They're not killing themselves. They're not going AWOL and denying that they knew Jesus. And you have Jesus speaking to his mother. Woman, behold your son, points to John, his best friend. John, behold your mother. This changes everything. The future is going to be different, but they're there. And they're feeling something like this. This hurts like crazy. I'm so confused. There's no other option for me now but to look ahead. And in all of this pain, trust God for what's next. They're not thinking, let's pretend this didn't happen. Let's whitewash over this. Let's not show our emotions. They're showing emotions. The question is, what's next? Now, there's got to be some way for this to work out, even though I don't understand it. And the commitment is, as though it goes like this, I'm moving forward with something new, even though I have no idea what the something new is going to be. They are troubled. They are definitely brokenhearted. They are most likely confused. But listen, they are present They are leaning into the reality of the death. No promises for them yet. They're just embracing that reality and planning, or at least hoping, for a new future. Three really different ways to respond to death. Two of them seem to imply that there's no sense, or at least a truncated sense of death doesn't have the last word, but it sure speaks loudly now. One response Convinced that there's a future in the midst of all of this pain. One of my favorite songwriters is a guy called Justin McRoberts. He's a friend of our church. And he has, well, his favorite song, my favorite song of his is called Done Living. And in the chorus of that song, the lyric goes like this. The question isn't, are you going to die? You're going to die. The question is, will you be done living when you do? That's a good question. Death is part of every person's story, just like it was part of that Easter story. But the events of Easter week remind us that though it's a part of every human story, it's not the end of the story. Though it's a part of the novel, it is not the last chapter in the novel. At least it need not be. I mean, listen. Didn't the scars that signaled to the apostles the end of everything, the death of everything, also served to remind them that this is an open door to a new life, which is going to be abundant life. The same scars 
reminded of death on the one hand and invited us into life on the other. Death has a word in life, all right. A sometimes painful, gnawing, haunting, confusing, threatening word. Let's not deny that. But make no mistake about it. Easter reminds us that death never, ever has the last word. Easter is a, tells the story of all of our lives. And one of the things we learn from it is that death is not the end of the story. The second thing we learn about it is that living in the unknown is part of the process. Can I get an amen from that? Living in the unknown is part of the process. I don't know what's going on. Can you imagine, the art's sort of talking about the Friday component to Easter, to the Easter story where all their hopes and their dreams came crashing down at the crucifixion. They stood watching his body, beaten, broken, and then dead, and then put in a tomb, and they thought, what does this mean? But can you imagine then what Saturday was like? That was Friday. Do you know what, I mean, Friday was the death of their vision, the death of their hope. Sunday, of course, as we know, is going to be the end of the story. Resurrection happens and life comes. But do you know what happened on Saturday? Do you know what happened on Saturday in this Easter story? If you read your Bibles, you know what happened on Saturday? Every passage on, the, on Easter talks about burying him in the tomb. They got him in the tomb before sunset because the Sabbath was coming and then it stops and starts with, and then on the first day of the week, while it was still early, and it jumps right to Sunday. Nothing happened on Saturday. But I put myself back in this position of thinking about the apostles and what they must have been, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, these men, these women that are talked about, and thinking about what must have been like for them. They had buried him on Friday night before sundown. Then we hear nothing. Then they waited, and they waited from Friday in the dark through the night, all the way through the day Saturday, all the way through another long night, and then the text picks up again and says on the first day of the week, that next Sunday. All of that time from Friday night in the dark to Sunday at dawn, they waited and they wondered, what now? What is going on? Apparently, living in the unknown is part of the process. Being lost and waiting and wondering where God and what he, where is God and what he's up to, apparently that is real, friends. That is a real deal for us, just like death is real in our lives. Waiting and wondering where God is and what he's up to is real in our lives. For, it's so real that it may be the harder thing for many of us than actual death, than the losses that we experience. We kind of look around and we know Loss does happen, and we sort of gird ourselves for it, but there's really no way of getting ourselves through that Saturday of, so then what does this mean for me, other than getting through it? We're living in this unknown about what was God up to? What does this mean for my life? Now what? That follows these broken dreams and these losses that pile up in life. It's pretty common in the story of God to be wondering, what are you up to, God? Does that make you feel better? For your journey, it is pretty common in the story of God to be wondering what is up. 18 times in the Psalms alone, the psalmist cries out, how long, O Lord? It's our version of where are you? 
What is going on here? What just happened last night, Friday night? What just happened? And Saturday, this long silence of not hearing and not seeing and not knowing and not understanding what it means. There's a famous story about it in John chapter 11 where two friends of Jesus, Jesus, it says that Jesus loved them, Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. They came to Jesus and they said, would you come? We know how much you love us and your best friend Lazarus is dying. He's sick and he's dying. Can you come and can you heal him? And the text just says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and loved Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two more days where he was. And so of course... When Lazarus died because Jesus didn't come to heal him, the women went ballistic. What? Wait. What? You, you have the... You. That's Saturday, my friends. What in the world are you up to, God? And where have you been? The end of the vignette was that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, but apparently living in the middle, living in the, in the waiting for that, living in the unknown is part of the process. Why would God do this? Why would God do this? Why does he seem to do this all the time? Even when he plans on doing something miraculous, even when Sunday is coming, why does he let us live in the Saturday with nothing? In a waiting and in a lostness and a confusion, why would he allow us to wonder where he is and what's going on? You know the answer to that question? Me neither. We don't really know. But because he's good, God is. And because he is for us, then he must be something, doing something deep and significant and good in us through Saturday through the waiting. He must be doing something in us, a work in us that can only be brought to fruition through this kind of experience, through this kind of timing, through this kind of waiting, through this kind of longing. If I had to guess, if I had to guess why, based on what I understand the scriptures to teach about the character and the nature of God, if I had to guess why, I would guess he's deepening us. He's maturing us. He's growing us up. He's helping us be free from our instant gratification mentality. He's helping us be free from our compulsive attempts to arrange and manipulate our life. He's, a, he's growing us and deepening us, pulling us away from our compulsive need to always have it go easy. He's strengthening us and he's deepening us so that we would be people of deep and rich character. Because friends, to survive in this world and to love this world and to heal this world the way that he has called each of us to do, requires a deepening and a maturing. And Saturdays while we wait and we wonder what God is up to and we hang on is a deepening process. He's doing something good in us while we wait. That's one reason I I, I would guess. Second thing I would guess is that I think while we wait and while we wonder what's going on, he's recalibrating our heart's desire for him, longing for him, longing for an answer. When we take easy answers and we grab them, then we move right on. But he's recalibrating in us a a, a hunger and a thirst for him, for his solutions, for his intervention, for his presence to be felt. And so as we wait, we realize just how hungry we, we really are for a real answer and that there aren't any real answers in our life unless we factor in a sovereign and good and all powerful God 
And he recalibrates our hearts to remember that. It's a reminder of how much we need him. So what do we do while we wait? In our text this morning, I don't know if you noticed it, just at the end of Friday, right before the text jumped to then say, and then on the first day of the week, very early while it was still dark, just before it jumped to Sunday, it said this about the women. The women rested because it was the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. What? The women took the day off. The women took the Sabbath and rested in obedience to God. Among all the beautiful meanings of what the Sabbath was for Jewish people, not the least of them is that the Sabbath was an an exercise in discipline where we would stop our striving, we would stop our fixing, we would stop our solving, and we would say, you work, God. You're the answer. You provide. You bring everything I need. I will stop and rest and wait for you. You are my only hope. Friday is real. Saturday, not knowing what God is up to, is for real. And while we wait, we rest in obedience to the commandment. One last thing. I want you to know this. You're not in some grand experiment where God is unsympathetically conducting some test on our lives. Listen, it's not, he's not unsympathetic. It is not lost on him how difficult our losses of Friday nights are. It's not lost on him how difficult Saturday in our disorientation is. He knows that this side of heaven, our experience on earth, there are way too many Fridays and there are way too many Saturdays. He knows that. And the reason I know that, that he knows that, is that in the story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, that's the place, the only place we see in Scripture where we know it records that Jesus wept. Jesus wept with them in their loss and in their disorientation. Why would Jesus weep? Does he not know the end of the story? He knew the end of the story. He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. For Jesus, there's never a Saturday. He knows that Sunday's coming. But he wept with them in their loss of Friday and in their disorientation of Saturday. He felt their pain. He knows how hard Fridays are for us, friends, and he weeps with us. He knows how disoriented we are in our Saturdays when we wonder what he's doing. And he weeps with us and walks with us. He knows the whole story. He knows the whole story. And if we hang on and rest and place our trust in him, very early in the morning, Sunday will come. Well, so far it's been pretty fun, right? Death, anxiety, silence, wondering, ugh. And, um, but what's so interesting is when we were talking about this service, it's because that's our life, man. That is the experience 
I think we think of our normal life, we normally feel death and anxiety and silence and mystery. That's what we feel. But even though we feel that, it's interesting, every human being knows in the depths of their soul, even not people of no faith, they know that something has got to be better. Something has to be changed. Sunday is coming. They may say it differently, but every human, be- human being knows that Sunday is coming in some way because we all know our life and body is wasting away and we need something new. We need to be changed and we need to be transformed. And the Christian faith and, and, and why we're here this morning is to celebrate that Jesus came so that we can be transformed, that transformation really is possible. It's interesting, when I think of all the things in my life that I'm not happy with, which are plenty, and I think of all the ways that I want to change them, I actually am willing to invest quite a bit of money and pride into fixing them. I will spend money and join a gym. Um, I will buy books to uh, learn how to deal with my, my dad issues, you know. I will even wander into Buckle and go shopping for clothes, which no 40-year-old man should do. I'm just throwing that out there, but I didn't know. Because in our own wanting to get fixed, we go and do things that we think are going to lead for transformation. And we white-knuckle it, and we try, and we try, and we try, and we try, and we white-knuckle it, and at some point we just give up. And I come home in my new buckle clothes, and my wife says, you cannot wear that much denim with the embroidery on it. I'm like, okay, that's helpful. Because us trying by ourselves only gets us so far. True transformation happens when we are with people. And we know this to be true. You join a gym, that's great. But if you spend the money and get a trainer, whoa, your whole workout experience is different. Your whole what you're going to do with your body is different because someone who knows something more than you will do that, right? Instead of reading books about my dad issues, right? If I actually go to a therapy and go to a counselor, someone who's been trained, when I'm with someone in the presence of someone who can hear me, oh, I can work through that stuff. My friend Pete Stout says, Ben, buckle's not for you. Let me help you. I go, oh, Thank you. And I have a human in my life willing to help me not buy clothes from Buckle. Like human beings in our life, the presence, that's how we're made. Presence is what transforms us. And this morning at Easter, we celebrate that Jesus, the good teacher, the good rabbi, the wise person, the son of God, didn't just come to teach us things and we just try to do good Christian-y things. I'm going to love my neighbor. I'm going to care for the orphan and widows. I'm going to turn the other cheek. Those are all great things. That is not where transformation happens. Transformation happens when we're connected to Jesus Christ. The resurrection is so incredible because Jesus is alive. He's no longer bound by his human body, and he can meet all of us exactly where we're at. When Jesus was alive on earth, he could only meet with his 12 people. At most, his 70, 72 posse. That was it. And then when he died, they all scattered. We only can do as well as the presence that we're with. And so we celebrate Easter because Easter is the moment where Jesus is alive and he is running after us. In John chapter 10, it says that we're the good shepherd. I mean, that Jesus is the good shepherd, sorry. And that he is one to lay down his life for those he loves. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. We get death and destruction. It is in our soul. We get it. We feel it. We long it. It's just in us. And yet we long for hope. And Jesus says, man, I am where life is found. I am where transformation is found. Jesus says, we are like sheep. We've gone astray. We've wandered. We're just eating grass, eating grass, looking up, and all of a sudden finding ourselves in death and destruction. We have no idea how we got here. Or maybe we know exactly how we got here, but it is wrecking our bodies. And it is so hard to turn around and look all the way back where we're supposed to be. 
And sometimes you just think, forget about it. I'm going to stay right here. But Jesus, in his grace and in his mercy, because he's resurrected, he goes exactly to where we are. He leaves the 99. He leaves them behind, goes exactly where you are. From the farthest reaches that you think you can go, he shows up right next to you and says, I am here and I am with you. John 10 says, for those that, that the sheep will know the shepherd's voice. And this Easter, I think our, our invitation to you, our question for you is, are you willing to stop and just look around? You've been eating grass for so long. Are you willing to look up and see where in the world am I? How did I get to right here? Jesus is so much less interested in knowing how you got to be right there than wanting you to hear his voice. And this Easter, because he's alive, because he's not in the tomb, because he is a God who is alive and present through his Holy Spirit, he is wooing us, he is calling us. And the question for us is, do we have ears to hear? Do we have ears to hear that the living God is saying, are you tired of death? Are you tired of anxiety? Are you tired of silence? Are you tired of doing these things that you thought would satisfy you but are just crushing your spirit? Follow me. And what's incredible is even taking these tiny baby steps toward Jesus, our, our whole mission statement to engage with the spiritually hungry towards a life in Christ, we're just saying, man, just take one step. If you just take one step, I think that's you, Jesus, one step. What's incredible is if you start just taking one step towards Jesus, you start doing the things of Jesus, even the echo of it is going to benefit you. If you said, I don't care less about Jesus, but today I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, and that was your thing, your life's going to change. It's going to be different. Just doing the things of Jesus are a benefit. But the ultimate good news of, of Easter is not that Jesus comes and whispers in us to do good things, to be good people, but he invites us to come into the pen, to no longer be lost, to no longer be wandering around, but to be adopted into the family of God, to be the very daughters and sons of the King, with all the rights, with all the responsibilities, to be marked by God as one of his own. And why Christianity is so incredible, why we love Jesus so much, is because Jesus he gives us his spirit. Jesus never promises our life is going to be great without pain or we'll never doubt or wrestle with things again. That's not the promise that God gives. All throughout scripture, the promise is, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will be with you. And when we submit our lives to Jesus, we're filled with the Holy Spirit and the presence of God is in us and with us forever. And transformation happens when we're willing to actually quit white knuckling our life to let go to give space for the Holy Spirit to have his way in us. Because when the Holy Spirit has his way in us, then we grow fruit. And instead of being do-gooders, we become transformed people who are marked by love and joy and peace, patience and kindness and goodness, and gentleness and self-control. That's who God made us to be, longed for us to be. And we only can lean into that when we submit our lives to Jesus when we encounter the risen Lord and the Holy Spirit has his way in us. And so this morning, that is just a simple invitation. Are you willing to open your eyes and see, just take a real look, where am I? And no matter where you are, if you are a Friday night person and death is what's marking you, if you're a Saturday person and you are riddled with doubt and anxiety and silence and what is up, or if you're a Sunday person and you just love Jesus and what he's done for you and you just love him so much, are you just willing to open your eyes and acknowledge where you're at? Different seasons, we're going to find ourselves in different places. But God's invitation is we open our eyes and we open our ears. That we be open to the voice of God calling us back to him. Surrendering our life to him. Being found in him. 
so that we can be transformed by him and into his likeness. Now, I'd like to, to invite you to stand. We're going to close with one more worship song. And uh, we don't just sing because we love singing. We sing because it's a way that we pray. We sing because it's a way that we learn and rehearse truths about who God is. It's a way that we pray to celebrate who God is. So if you're trying to wrestle with who God is and figure it out, then be open to what these words might say for you. If you're wrestling with doubt and anxiety, may these words be a comfort for you of who God is inviting you to be in Him. And for those of you who've been found in Jesus, may we celebrate what God has done for us on the cross, His presence in our life, and the transformation He invites us to do. Happy Easter. Now would you receive this blessing from us? It's an ancient blessing, certainly worthy of an Easter Sunday. We mean it from our hearts. As you leave, take this blessing with you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. Amen and amen. We love you guys. We have plenty of food. Please stick around and enjoy our time together. We'll see you soon. Happy Easter, everybody.